This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number three, recorded on April 11th, 2014. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technology shaping the future through an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live, and actually today broadcasting live from the Gallup Studios here in Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, we post the show uh, each week out at TheAverageGuy.tv. Full set of show notes on that as well. You might want to head out there and uh, pick those up if you're listening to the show. Uh, we also broadcast with Christian Johnson. He's a student at the University of Maryland there in College Park. We say we're never on a schedule, but always up to date. We post the show notes out at TheAverageGuy.tv. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can contact contact us via email. Send that to me, jim at TheAverageGuy.tv, or you can find me on Twitter. That's just at Jay Collison. Or now, call those questions in, and this is a good show to call those questions in on. We will uh, play them back, and, and Christian, of course, will get to those questions right away. Just call those in, 402-478-8450. I've gotten a couple calls from you, so I appreciate that. Again, 402 402- Four seven eight eight four five zero. Leave a message, and we'll play those right here on the show. All right. Well, we've got our first guest on Cyber Frontiers. Fairly excited about it. I mentioned Christian earlier, and I'll turn it over to him and let him introduce our guest. Thanks, Jim. Uh, it's been a good week, a uh, long week, and I have a bit of a congestion, so hopefully that won't be too annoying throughout the show. Uh, so I'll try not to talk too much this show. Uh, we have with us Dr. Jim Pertolo, who is an associate professor in the computer science department at the University of Maryland. Uh, and really an all-around guy in both software engineering and privacy topics at the university and teaches a lot of those topics to our students in the computer science program in honor seminars and so forth. Uh, so I really want to turn it over to him, have him introduce himself and uh, give you guys a sense of what he's doing at the university. Uh, good to have you on the show, Dr. Berlow. Glad to be here, Christian. Glad I, I also uh, sorry to hear your congestion there, but uh, we'll uh, we'll give you a, a long weekend to catch up on that on the assignments too. Cool. So um, you started. How long have you been at the university again? Uh, some of my colleagues would probably say too long now, but I'm I'm this is my 28th year now of uh, um, uh, of working here. And my family just... is still waiting for me to find honest labor, so uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll 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 find that one of these days. I'm pretty sure. And so you've taught a variety of courses at the university, um, but you're currently teaching the 435 course in software engineering and the Honors College seminar in privacy versus in-your-face big government. Can you talk a little bit about uh, these current courses and the previous courses you've taught and uh, which ones you enjoy the most? Sure. The banner course I'm now, which takes probably most of my time, is the Capstone Software Engineering course. I'm not sure the viewership out there is very interested in all the arcane details and numbers and whatnot, but the essence of it is that this is the um, culmination of uh, a lot of preparation of our majors here in the program. Uh, students go into this class with uh, already having taken a number of our really tough upper-level courses, so my mission is to intertwine those experiences, integrate them, um, challenge the students quite a bit, try to get some of the industrial practices um, uh, conveyed as well. Um, probably the uh, most important point out of this course is really that uh, they've already got a lot of the technology and the content. Uh, software engineering is something a little bit different than that. It's software engineering is more of a communication exercise than a technical exercise. So uh, these are all smart students here at the university. Um, they're all most of them smarter than me by now, and that's fine. I have a little bit more guile and business savvy than uh, uh, perhaps they have at this point. They'll beat me on that one of these days too. So what we do is challenge them to put all those good smarts uh, to good use in projects, live projects, um, and in teams to uh, uh, see if they can not only just write a good program, but they can all work on the right program. Um, so uh, it's a communication exercise to make sure everybody's on the same page, in particular where that same page includes the customer as well. So it's not good to make a perfect program if, if you're solving the wrong problem. That's fundamentally what we're teaching with, uh, with that course. Uh, you could probably speak, and maybe you already have spoken to the privacy course um, on, on this. So this is one of the ways that we get students in the Honors College uh, through their gen eds to seminar. We uh, stretch brains, talk about communication skills, talk about how to analyze and uh, summar summarize various uh, deep topics, put them together. Uh, 
Um, there's other courses I'm working on this semester as well that you didn't mention. I'm working with the Quest program. Uh, it's one of the business uh, and entrepreneurship enterprises uh, that's available on my campus. Uh, so we have a, uh, a team of students that uh, are out on site with, I won't mention the, um, the, the industry right now. I'm not sure what the rule, ground rules are for that. But they're out on the site looking at uh, supply chain management issues. Uh, coming up with some good uh, uh, visualization tools to analyze and monitor in real time uh, different uh, uh, inventory issues, security issues um, as well. So I'm the mentor in that. They have live customers uh, that they're working with on that. And of course, I've got a lot of graduate direction uh, as well. So uh, students that are working on uh, advanced degrees, working research projects. Uh, and again, my challenge is to make sure to keep the, keep them pointed in the right direction. Again, again, I'll stipulate that all my students are smarter than me by now. So. Um, we'll uh, um, uh, just make sure that they're putting all the uh, 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 the right practices in place and, and uh, um, uh, learning the business practice of being a scholar of how to do how to do research. Yeah, and so research is really an interesting topic when we start looking at again part of the what we're trying to capture uh, in this show is some of the frontier technology, so to speak, where they're really not mainstream. The average guy really isn't looking at it. Uh, can you talk about some of the research projects that have been the most interesting to you and your students uh, over the past couple of years, uh, especially with the SEAM program and what your objectives were with SEAM and uh, what the um, kind of fruits of labor were from that project? Um, sure. And, and what that means in relation to uh, the cybersecurity industry and software engineering. Sure. Well, SEAM is the, the moniker of software engineering at Maryland that we've used as a container for a bunch of our activities. So at least have one place, at least one website name to, um, uh, to hang everything under. Um, the, the banner project here uh, that's presently going on is uh, funded by Office of Naval Research. It's an uh, intrusion detection um, project. Um, security in general. I'm not sure many people would call me a security guy uh, per se. Uh, my roots are as a software engineer, uh, applied languages development. Um, but uh, uh, cyber, of course, is where the money is these days. And there's a lot of problems in th this that um, a, uh, a systems guy can still sink his teeth into. So it's, it's been pretty productive for us. Um, the approach to this is, is really a simple idea. It's, it's, a, it's about how to use dynamic reconfiguration uh, changing programs at runtime in um, uh, pretty substantive ways in order to defeat a potential intruders um, uh, may, maybe inner knowledge of the application that uh, they might be using to try to break in. So by shaking the system up a little bit uh, from time to time we, we throw that off and apparently with some, some good results. So something already is done at the fine grain level, code level. We're doing it at a far greater level to see what the uh, efficiency that is. So there's two pieces of that. We need to build something that can change programs at runtime uh, between variants of the same, that have the same functionality. And uh, a big piece of this now is measurement. So how do you know that what you've done is any good? And how do you know when to reconfigure and, and uh, what parts of the program to reconfigure that part? That project's going gangbusters. Um, it's a lot of hardcore statistics. It's a lot of hardcore measurement. Uh, some kind of classical software engineering techniques that are kind of coming back into the, the fore here um, and uh, that we're able to do a lot more effectively in the era of uh, uh, large uh, open source code repositories. We have more things to analyze now over time than maybe were possible when the t techniques were figured out um, maybe even a decade ago. Uh, people walked away from it. We're able to bring those out live and get a lot more uh, value out of it because of the availability of these repos. So those are the two thrusts uh, right now on their, for, for the current research project. Um, and uh, we're just trying to rake it in with both hands now. We have some pretty good ideas that uh, seem to be paying off. Um, so uh, the more uh, smart students I can get and work on these projects, sort of the better. Biggest challenge of this right now is we get our students uh, pretty well prepared. They're all very smart. They've got good credentials. As soon as we get them ready to do something for us, they uh, go off and work for, you know, Amazon and Google and Microsoft and even Gallup and stuff. So uh, um, it's uh, um, that's kind of a problem. But the good news is there's more smart students coming after them. We'll just keep working on it. So. And so when you look at 
software engineering and the systems aspects that are touching cybersecurity in these particular areas, um, what is the typical percentage you see as when you look at the entire problem of cybersecurity? About how much do you think is a systems issue and a software issue, and how much do you think are other topics that we see in academia and industry? I, I, I think that the software piece of this gets the most visibility, but I don't know that it's necessarily the biggest piece of the of the, the the real problem once you you know open up the hood and look inside. Um, you know, obviously uh, there's a lot of malware, bad guys out there. They're trying to break into systems, whatnot. But that's not the only way to think about uh, the security problem. Um, that's the, again the visible part. That's where a lot of the resources are going. It's where a lot of the resources need to go because there's a lot of crummy software out there as well that um, is uh, allowing um, um, uh, exploits and, and so on. Uh, but um, there's a lot of other aspects to the cyber problem which I don't think get the same attention and same emphasis. So I'll, let me say something about that. So um, the psych psychology aspects of this, um, the, uh, the the profiling information about potential um, you know miscreants and bad guys, um, and understanding the applied psychology um, that you could use to um, divert. Uh, attention away from places that you want to have maintained secure to identify potential miscreants. Um, there is uh, an anthropological aspect of this as well, understanding cultural aspects of things. There's the business side of this stuff, um, which is um, understanding uh, the finances. I already mentioned a moment ago the supply chain management issues. That's a huge security matter internationally, the flow of money, the flow of parts, the flow of goods. How do you know what the uh, the goods are in all cases that are that are flowing, and um, how's it being paid for? So the um, forensic accounting um, and, and analysis and all this stuff is pretty important. Um, those are not squarely software issues at all. But again, um, you know, uh, uh, the the software is something that um, the big companies want to sell the government. There's you know the government's got money because it's it's afraid and wants to make make things secure. Um, obviously, somebody's going to come along and say, well, "Dr. Hackwell's got a magic elixir here that's going to, um, you know, cure those ills." So people tend to buy software, buy shields, buy firewalls, buy gizmos. Um, but uh, what we should really be uh, uh, investing in as well, and maybe we aren't as much, is we should buy illumination, and that's some of the research projects. Besides understanding the people, understanding the finances, understanding the um, the inventory control, understanding the forensics aspects of this for reconstruction afterwards. Those are all pretty important aspects as well. And so when you're looking at, you know, uh, all the different tools and technologies that are being implemented in cybersecurity, whether it's for offensive or defensive, uh, one of the big uh, kind of hot buttons right now when looking at, uh, like for example, we could talk about ways in which profiling um, cyber criminals from a psychological standpoint may help us proactively identify cybersecurity threats from a kind of physical human uh, security aspect. And a lot of people say that, you know, big data and machine learning and some of these topics from a software engineering perspective also help give you some of that proactive ability to, you know, see and predict events before uh, they're showing up in your rear view mirror. Do you agree with that? Uh, do you think there's a combination of the two? Um, or do you think we need to be going in a different direction with the technology and with the other uh, focus areas as a whole? Well, I agree with what you said. I, the, the understanding of, of the, the, the profiling, the, the, the modeling of the, the subjects that we're, we're, we're concerned about here, that's pretty important. And we can't build effective um, software systems until we have, um, you know, that inside as well. I, we can make a simpler uh, uh, statement about that uh, by analogy, and that is we know just in general software engineering and business systems that um, over time in an organization the software and the the, the technical infrastructure grow together. Um, it, it, they either do that or the company fails, and so um, uh, over time, then when you introduce a change, if somebody is not aware of those business processes. If they say the software really ought to be doing this than something else, if somebody's designed it in a different way, you get this dissonance. And then that's where when you as soon as you roll that out, people try to use this, uh, they're going to be pulling their hair out and they're going to be swearing at this, the system. 
and uh, and fighting it rather than you know, using it to help them do their job better. So the, the, this question of dissonance is something we know about in software engineering in, in general. The same thing is true when you're when you're designing the cyber systems and secure systems. Um, if you you can design it some ways that uh, um, facilitate um, the, the the intended users to use it the right way and help them get their jobs done. In this case, to help them maintain secure practices, we might be maybe we're talking about authentication practices. Maybe we're talking about um, uh, the the workflow so you don't um, uh, leave the wrong materials out or something. Um, and also so you can um, uh, advantage uh, yourself uh, in, in, on the defensive side um, to understand the, the likely you know paths that um, the miscreant might take um, and either uh, deflect him from that or because you understand the applied psychology aspects leave the leave that honeypot out for him to stick stick his hand in and and um, and, and out himself right away so you can deal with him sooner rather than later can, can I ask Christian with that honeypot concept? How do you, as as they as you capture them in that, then what's the recourse, or or what are you attempting to to do with that information you have that that prevents that from happening in the future? Sure. So you know, it's not like with the honeypot, you're going to be able to say, oh, we now know the guy who got in the system, right? You might get an IP address, but that IP address is being bounced all over the internet, and it doesn't really mean anything. What the honeypot lets you do, though, is look at once the machine is compromised, what is it that the person actually does to, how do they reconfigure the machine, what scripts are being installed, what internet resources are they accessing, what are they doing to make it so that it's frustratingly difficult for the administrator to fix what they've done and also to even notice that they've gotten into the system. Uh, and so you can analyze everything from keystrokes that have the commands of what the person is typing in uh, to the network packet uh, files which will show you you know real-time traffic if what is coming in and out of your network um, connection which will let you then see okay here were the HTTP packets requested and you know here's what was here's the payload that was put in the system and then here's what they're doing with that that also then lets you see what malicious scripts they've installed and what those scripts are going to talk to um, there's really a lot of things you can do um, those are just some of the technical things we also have some uh, kind of more uh, psychology based honeypots where we do experiments where you know for example systems that have a warning banner that says you know this system is monitored uh, so so on and so forth are they what is the percent likelihood that those systems will be taken advantage of by a hacker versus something that just has no banner just has a login and so forth um, and actually one of the recent research papers published at the university showed that uh, there was sixty percent uh, that hackers were 60% less likely to hack a system that had a warning banner on top than ones that did, even though they were just as insecure and kind of uh, out in the wind. Um, and so those give you a lot of insight into looking, how is the person behaving, what are they doing, and it lets you see, okay, we now know what scripts they're using, we now know what IP address they're coming from, and now we know some information uh, about that particular attack or infiltration and we can use that to, uh, and this happens a lot in uh, corporate networks uh, in, in, in doing um, somewhat retroactive uh, defensive security of a corporate network or an institution where you know you've given them this particular honey and they've got in and you pretty much have everything about what it was they did now you can just blacklist it and that's one less threat that you have to worry about on your perimeter um, and so yeah let them come into systems that don't have any business or corporate value to you because then you're blocking and blacklisting them from systems that do actually have value and meaning to you that you wouldn't want them to be attempting on so there's really a lot of applications for both academia and you know corporate sector where they're trying to protect assets and this is I would say one tool in an arsenal of tools that um, have been useful in doing intrusion detection and then blocking that from the system. Uh, so there's there's a lot of lot of things and a lot and actually a fair amount of papers uh, both from the University of Maryland and elsewhere um, published about honeypots. So I know that got a lot of traction for us, uh, Christian. Last time you mentioned that, and we had some of the guys that listened to the show say, "Well, I'm kind of that. That's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting comment or context or or you know concept uh, in that." 
Uh, Jim, let me ask you, from a honeypot standpoint, uh, for the average software developer, is that something they can use then to learn, deploy their own code into that and, and kind of see how it's attacked? Is that is that the thought process? Oh, yeah, very very much so. Um, again, you know, understanding the human factors, the relationship between uh, you know the, the, the legitimate users of the machine and then the, potentially the illegitimate ones um, as well. So um, one of the things we've worked on in, in, uh, under the scene rubric is we have a, um, a system called Bugbox, which is downloadable. You can use it, it's, it um, and it captures some number of hundreds of uh, different old exploits. We put nothing new there, so don't get your hopes up out there for, uh, for black hats. Uh, so there are things that are pretty much out there. But uh, the intent is to, uh, again, provide a resource to help with the very objective measurement of the eff efficacy of one or another uh, mechanism for remediation, uh, for understanding exploits, for teaching about uh, possible exploits and understanding them. So the bug box, which you can go and download and take today if you like, um, and install um, and put it on a VM of yours and have fun, um, is, um, is something to, to do exactly that, to help you understand how to uh, insert your software if you'd like to, um, or just, again, learn from the ones we've, we've already put out there, but put your software in there, understand it, model it, um, and then perhaps understand more of the properties uh, that Christian just described um, that um, you know, either about um, how a potential miscreant would use it. We don't let you, we don't give you the honeypot aspect of that, but you could you could establish this in a kind of a protected, a fenced off, protected area. You could do this and honey, you know, put that in, in the honeypot and, and then do the appropriate modeling as well. So there's a whole space of other considerations out there uh, uh, for, for the human factor side. Um, look, another uh, simple one that uh, we learned about with, uh, uh, again, in scene, um, a tremendous undergraduate project a number of years ago. We made an interactive pedestrian map. Uh, it served the university very well. We've had hundreds, hundreds of thousands of users. Um, um, it's, it seems bulletproof. It's kind of hard to take down um, and uh, um, gets a lot of use. What, it's an open-sourced, crowd-sourced, map um, that the university um, uh, community supports. There's no one centralized figure in this that, that controls it all. In fact, one of the assumptions behind the project was once you put a centralized governmental authority in, in charge of maintaining something, they're probably going to do it wrong. Um, the point on the human factors is this. Um, we were very interested as a research project to figure out what are the properties of an information system like this that would lend itself to um, appropriate use and responsible use by folks. Some of the things we found uh, experimentally were simply that um, the openness and responsiveness of the system for people that got genuine value out of it, um, coupled with a simple statement at the start, yeah, I will, uh, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to use this system and, and help maintain it. Um, we haven't been hacked yet. That's not an invitation, folks, mm -hmm. but uh, nevertheless, it's, um, um, you know, the, the support for this to illustrate if you're walking across campus and you see something's changed or you see an issue, maybe one of the handicap access uh, doors is blocked or whatnot, is, you know, who's going to take the time to send a memo to a big, you know, uh, bloated government and hope that maybe someday something gets fixed? Probably not many. But if you know that you can take a mobile device out, upload a, a, fix, a heads up right there and say, hey, there's a problem here, and, you, and then you see that something gets fixed, the fact that you, you, your efforts get put in responsibly, people tended to use it, and they tended to use it more responsibly as well. Now, again, there's, you could, there's downsides to that as well, but nevertheless, um, it's, uh, it, it's one of the properties we learned. There are many other properties out there that once you understand the, 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 the interaction with the, the users, the human factors in your software, you can build it in and make it better. Yeah, that it was not intended to poll you, by the way. So, um, <laughs> so since there's a gap, let me put the uh, the uh, the pitch in before we we might tend to tr uh, trend away from this for more measurement. You know, Christian, you're asking about where we the community might put more effort and research. As an old-time software guy, let me say I'd love to see more in the way of hardcore measurement of the results, especially in some of the cybersecurity systems. There's a lot of tendency out there to say, "Hey, we made this new whizbang firewall or this new whizbang." Um, uh, uh, you know, de deflection device or uh, or whatnot. But how do you know it's any better? And how do you know that when you uh, you know factor in the opportunity cost, maybe you could have put the resources into a, a different mechanism. 
how do you know there's any gain at the end of the day? And uh, that's probably the, the, the most telling gap, uh, I would say, in the research world right now. Uh, I think there's some token efforts at these things. I think it needs to be done very well. We understand the history of this. You know, right after 9-1-1, nobody was going to stand in the way of purchasing any kind of um, uh, magic elixir that would have warded off, you know, more evil. Um, nobody was going to be on record as saying they voted against, uh, you know, purchasing a, you know, turbo encabulator uh, for uh, uh, for security. But you know, uh, a lot of people, you know, ran in and tried to, in, with very good faith and good intentions, make good good stuff to solve problems, and they did. A lot of people put a lot of crap in, <laughs> and and sent a lot of invoices as well. And now we're living with that bloat and paying those costs. You know, I think we'd like to get a little bit lean again, find out what really works, do that more and do that better, and then um, uh, whatnot. But that's that. But the measurement is not what's going on there. The industry doesn't have a strong incentive to to, to do that, um, unless they think they've got the better product. Um, um, and uh, I think the consumers do. But once it gets cloaked in, um, you know, national security, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, drapes and whatnot, then it's, uh, you know, it, it doesn't get done as well. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned that too, because even looking at the products that, you know, federal government, contractors, private sector, there's just so many different things out on the market for intrusion detection. And you can go to these companies and ask, well, what does your product do for me that I can't do already? Or why is your product specifically going to protect against this particular threat that I'm worried about? And, you know, sometimes those answers are. Uh, somewhat strong and sometimes they're complete fluff and I think with all those different products and, and offerings that are out there in response to that, that has become um, a rather difficult issue. But I do want to swing back on one more uh, question about honeypots. Uh, a lot of times when we think about honeypots, we look at you know external threats coming into internal. Do you see any practical use for designing and configuring a honeypot that's designed for looking for internal threats. So you're a large company, you have 10, 20,000 employees, and you're looking for the insider threat, which I think uh, with the revelation of some of the things that have happened in the news in the last year or two, uh, a lot more companies are thinking about the insider threat and what that means for their network security plan and so forth. Do you really see the honeypot as a resource for internal threat type cybersecurity issues or do you see some of the more conventional means to addressing that issue as more effective? Um, I would say yes and no on the honeypot question and, and the, the yes part is um, of course we should uh, have more understanding about the usage patterns. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine however, and this is the no part, that any employer, any company has a strong interest in having um, uh, an employee uh, sit there doing essentially nothing um, you know, having no good effect in terms of the business processes, which, you know, that's kind of what you have in the classic thought of a honeypot. You don't let them do real stuff. And so um, what you'd, re I would I would generalize the statement to say that better modeling um, and, and, again, profiling, some people say that like it's not a good thing. In some cases, it is a good thing um, of the, the user practices. But the generalization of that, um, it, it might be not in terms of just the workflow, but also in terms of the practices. Who are the people... They're most likely to be the ones to leave the uh, the, the the root password on a Post-it note stuck above the uh, uh, the screen. Um, you know, are there patterns of uh, interaction once you mix in social media or usage of mobile devices, things like that? Those are the things. You know, I again, most of the exploits, most of the um, issues that are, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, the spear phishing specific target um, uh, exploits. Um, happen because of the human factors and not because of the technology necessarily. So um, it's always fun to give a, a, a pep talk to the undergraduate pool when we talk about you know courses we're going to offer. When uh, one of my very good friends, a theory guy, um, uh, you know he he proves theorems. I work for a living. Um, so we get together and he talks about crypto and the importance of algorithms, and whatnot. Um, and um, you know we we challenge the students. All right, so um, who's going to break that? Uh, he turns to me about uh, thinking I'm going to do some supercomputer thing. You know, I just basically grab him and 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 you know give him knuckle rubs or something until he tells me the password. Um, you, you don't have to break the code. You don't have to you know to 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 take the machine down. You just have to compromise the person. That's how most of these things happen. The profiling and modeling, perhaps using honeypot technology, but maybe allowing people to do real things, maybe would give you better patterns 
find out who's more likely to do things. Do people make poor decisions when they're tired or stressed at the end of the day? Maybe that's a good moment to have, um, you know, some subtle cues, like the applied psychology, to uh, um, to to put things in. And can you get a value from that? I, mean, I don't know the answer to that, but there's probably some research project out there that, that could help us. Sure. Um, let me let me ask you: Are we under less of a threat profile uh, as we as we're moving to more mobile devices? Then with the PC, uh, you know, the PC had all kinds of problems, and we were constantly patching and updating, and you know, and and I'm not hearing those same kinds of issues on the mobile platform. Have you any thought into that, or is it just the same same problem, different day? I th I, I think it's the same magnitude problem. I think it comes out in different ways. Um, I don't know that there's all the security people think there uh, uh, there is on the mobile devices. Um, I think the quality of the software, um, uh, while it may has less potential impact. I think the greater bulk of what's out there seems to be crapware um, and, and not very well thrown together. Um, so um, there is some very, very good software that runs on the mobile devices and in novel environments. Um, there's some very, very bad software out there as well, and it's harder to tell um, the difference. And in particular, the, um, the, um, uh, their privacy aspects. So, so some of the exploits are going to come out in different ways. Um, you know, the, the, the old classic image of, of something on a tower is you're going to have a machine lock up or maybe it does, it, you lose performance as it's serving as a part of a, a spam bot, uh, bot network or something. Um, you, you know, nobody's going to try to do that in a mobile device, but there are other things um, that um, are, are going to happen. The privacy aspects are key. There's more revenue associated with um, understanding your personal identifiable information and practices. Um, so why would somebody turn off the money spigot if they can own your phone uh, and and uh, have you keep divulging these other things? Okay. So that actually brings up a nice segue into the second part of what I want to talk about, which is really privacy, um, both from the, well, I think mobile security is a great place to start, seeing as how that's where we're currently at. Uh, but I'd like to kind of get an overview of what your interests have been in uh, privacy from both a cybersecurity aspect, so the, all the different applications and uh, services that we use on our phone, on our computers, and, and what you see as some of the biggest kind of threats, information assurance issues. Um, I think everyone deserves to hear why you don't have a Google account and don't use one. Uh, so those are the, so let's start there uh, before I get too many things on our plate here. So Well, I, like that's not already a big one, Christian. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I, I think privacy is one of the, the pressing issues of the time. It isn't like we haven't got a lot of issues. That's a pretty pretty important one now. So um, I, I, I call uh, uh, youngsters of your generation, Christian, the, the owned generation. There's almost nothing uh, that uh, of yours that isn't online or uh, almost from birth to, to a great extent um, and available. Um, and, um, you know, I think at some point in time that's going to be a, even a greater problem than it is now. I think it's a problem now. I think it's a bigger problem down the line. Um, privacy, uh, information about you, um, those are pigments on an artist's palette that somebody else used to paint his idea of what you are. So um, they're not, you know, you may be sharing things about yourself, thinking it's just for friends. Once it's out there, that genie's out of that bottle. Um, that information is able to be used in many other ways. Most of it's innocuous. We often hear that phrase, what have I got to hide? And, um, and look, maybe people genuinely feel that. I'm not sure people are making informed choices and decisions about how to answer that question yet. There are many um, you know, possible downsides, not all of which are realized. The, the immediate one, which is you know, still why the economy is, is, is on its feet today, why there's a Google, since you mentioned that, why there's many other companies, um, is that um, there is tremendous value associated with your information. Um, you, you're giving it away. The reason Google is rich, one of my former students uh, as a co-founder of this is, is able to, uh, to live the life he does, um, is that people willingly give up this, this information which has genuine business value. It's a shame you're not getting that value for you. Um, you may think of it as a trade because you're getting, we're using a Google Hangouts tool now, where there's, there are lots of other cool resources and tools out there you get apparently for free, you're not really getting it for free. Um, so you give this information away a little bit at a time. Um, that becomes a, um, a, a problem when people want to start using that information for many other things. In the extreme, 
people will use that for very nefarious things about you. Um, we, we should hope that Google stays on the, 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 the light side of the force, not the dark side of the force. They've always had that motto, don't be evil. I've always assumed that the more a company tries to assure us that they're not evil, that we know really where they are. Uh, but um, uh, it's, a, um, it, it's kind of a concern. What else could be done with that data? Quite a lot. And again, this ties into, and we're focusing more on cybersecurity this week, but we also have big data discussions, and that everyone knows is one of my hot buttons. Uh, where, what types of things uh, do you see that you know companies are doing with this data, and the fact that they're sifting through it, um, what potential exposure risks in that data is is viable? I mean, is it really true that these things are happening in a vacuum, and these uh, machines are, you know, automatically processing this data, or do you think that someone is looking at a screen at the same time and, you know, gathering, uh, you know, information that they otherwise wouldn't be seeing unless they were administering those systems? Um, yeah, I, I really think in, in some, not all cases, there really are people looking at screens putting all these these data together. Look, start with the, the exposure at the extreme side. These are the, the, the outliers, but maybe that at least gets some people's attention. Um, you know, people think, well, what's the problem of putting stuff, well, let's pick on Facebook or Twitter information about us, we even put photos up um, and whatnot and share the, the parts of our lives. And that's grand in the, the, the sort of the happy path through this, these the use case scenarios, right? Um, but, you know, uh, the outlier example is, um, uh, well, let's see, um, uh, the, a couple years ago, the terrorists uh, in that hotel in Mumbai in India um, had connectivity, they had Camo, um, they had internet access uh, for quite a long time, and their interests were in identifying the Americans, the Brits, the Jews, so they could kill them. They were able to identify and narrow down the identities based on checks through the internet. Um, that's a very awkward time to have a Facebook page up um, identifying yourself very prominently. Now, they, they didn't use Facebook in that particular case. They did um, um, find a way to compare some passports and other information as well. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe somebody's on a birthright tour in Israel, uh, someplace out of Tel Aviv or something, and and uh, if there's a terrorist event or problem there, that's an awkward, um, uh, or at some point in time, it's an awkward time to have the photos of your, your trip on a Facebook page. Um, so those are the extreme e events. Now let's throttle back and be a little less extreme. Um, there are the outliers with government. Um, so I, I, I want to think, and I kind of do think, that by and large, the people we have in government are trying to do the right thing for us in a lot of things, even though in the, as a side effect, they're potentially making some of the problems worse with the big data. Um, but uh, remember that the business processes drive what happens with the outcomes. And so when you want to start looking for a bad guy, something, something weird happens. This is not even just like a you know, Boston Marathon bomber, we have the anniversary here or something. Um, but we're starting to see this at smaller scale crime, still big to the, the victims, obviously, um, where police start looking based on the data and not necessarily just based on the facts of crime. So you've probably heard that story of uh, the, the, the fellow who was uh, um, on, on the ground under a lamppost one night, and his friend comes along and he says, what are you doing? I'm looking for my car keys. Where'd you last see them? Over there. Well, you know, why are you over here? Well, this is where the light is. Um, that's the problem with the police um, being so data-centric in things. So if you're fixed on understanding, um, gee, who, who, who's, on, who's registered a firearm that's near here, never mind that there's no other reason to believe they might be connected with some crime, who is it that um, uh, had a cell phone that was active uh, uh, near here? Uh, let's round up the usual suspects based on these things. That becomes something uh, where people, very good people, are going to come under police suspicion based only on uh, um, having done things that are very data-oriented and, and open to these techniques. And, of course, uh, the business model is that since we have these tools, we're supposed to use them, um, you know, and uh, um, data yearns to be used is one of the phrases we would use in this stuff. So, so those are the very extreme, a little less extreme um, examples. And now you don't have to go too far to find out even more cases uh, where all these tools of the big data are being used to impact people kind of day to day. 
So let's remember that the first people to get convicted under the, the strengthened laws made in surveillance made available after the Patriot Act years ago were drug convictions um, of people who came up um, on, on these things before the, the, the terrorists did. Um, now the apparatus that's being used for the surveillance is as much uh, being used for the uh, um, copyright, trademark, uh, uh, infringements, uh, music violations, that, you know, ripping music and downloading and so on, um, as, as many other things. That's one of the big activities of the Baltimore field office for the FBI up here. Um, they're, they're looking at uh, counterfeit goods that uh, um, uh, are coming in being sold uh, more cheaply under the brand names. How do you find these things? Big data techniques in, in monitoring in many cases. So, um, you know, this is uh, uh, now, do I want to defend people to, uh, um, uh, you know, to, to rip other people's intellectual property or, or trademarks or something? Not a chance. But the tools are increasingly being used for more and more of these things. And then pretty soon you're going to see the tools and technologies being used for far, far more mundane things, perhaps having nothing to do with breaking the law. I think you saw an example of this um, in probably the last couple of weeks, this fellow Ike with Mo uh, the Mozilla, uh, who had been maybe for 10 days the president of it until uh, a big backlash was found after searching of public records, the disclosure of the information, uh, revealed a donation um, to a political group in opposition to Proposition 8, I think, California, um, uh, four to six years ago. Um, he made no political statement other than the exercise of cash. Exercise of cash is political statement. Um, but it was in opposition to gay marriage. Um, that was the same position that President Obama and many other politicians had of the era, but it's, it's uh, considered uh, heresy in many circles today to have once held that position. The witch hunt was held, he was drummed out, and uh, that was an impact. So at what point in time, Christian, do these big te data technologies start being used, not just for finding, you know, the next would-be Boston marathon terrorist or the next trademark infringement or, you know, music rip person, but the next guy who once held thoughts considered to be outside the orthodoxy uh, for some political group. That's that's the trend, and so we haven't hit that balancing act there. So, unfortunately, once you put those data out, this fellow Ike had, what, six years uh, between when he wrote one check, made no other statement, and when he lost his job very prominently. Good luck trying to find the next one. I don't know what his future holds right now. Um, what other, you know, thoughts are in our past that, again, that genie's out of the bottle, What what's it going to look like a couple of years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? That's sort of the problem. You don't have a lot of wiggle room on that case. And so, you know, it doesn't really seem like uh, with the trend of how fast these technologies are progressing and people are adopting it, especially uh, seeing how young uh, kids are now getting their hands on these technologies, are into Facebook, have cell phones, and so forth. Do you have in your kind of frame of reference best practices, so to speak, in the sense that you know it's more or less inevitable that you know uh, these uh, every pe most all people from from any walk of life is are using these technologies. Do you have any recommendations for how they can minimize their, I guess, maximum possibility for being subject to these wide array of, of data mining tools. You know, are there are there ways you can use Facebook or are there ways you can use some of these tools that are, you know, yes, you're still out there, but you're not putting yourself out in such a wide range of circles. And maybe there's, you know, small things that you can do when you're on the internet and when you're using technologies like Facebook and so forth that, you know, makes it a little bit more minimized for you when putting your information out there. So you're trying to find out, or can we be a little bit pregnant or something here? I think this is uh, um, uh, not, the, uh, uh, not the way to think about this, Christian. Um, yeah, you can, you, you're either out there or you're not. Uh, look, I don't, I'm not advocating that people um, uh, have to live as hermits and have no interaction socially or something. You know, good grief. I think that um, um, the uh, doing this in a centralized, um, uh, large conglomerate, you know, the Facebook model. I mean, we're, we're, we'll pick on Facebook, but there are obviously others out there um, that, that do the same thing. Um, you know, my my rule of thumb is don't do that. Um, it, it uh, you know, it, I I don't I still I don't just don't use Google either for this reason. Remember, every time you use a Google search of the engine, you're giving them that extra little iota of of information. You load a, a page that downloads the jQuery package 
um, uh, from Google just to just to host it. Um, Google's not doing that because they're good guys. They're doing that because every time you refresh that page, um, you're giving up an IP address, location, uh, browser signature, um, uh, uh, kind of you know a sesh, couple session cookies potentially um, uh, to them to keep adding a, you know little more puzzle pieces um, to to that picture. Maybe people will say, oh, but they the privacy policy is that they're not going to advertise to us for that, and that's true. They're not based on that session, that interaction. Google's not going to send you e email. Many others might not uh, do that. You're trusting that they're going to maintain that policy. That trust has been ill-placed in the case of Facebook in the past, as you might remember. So, um, uh, you know, what if people change their mind in that? That was one of the essences of uh, a good privacy policy is you have to have control over the, the future policy and changes. Um, Google takes that information, but they're, they're building machine models, learning machine learning pictures, data models of uh, all these places. In many cases, they have profiles that don't have identity credentials attached to them, but eventually that one extra little puzzle piece is going to fall in. There's a join, a data join that happens, and gotcha. Now that that's pulled in. What they sell is that model, the, 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 the picture of these things. I keep different browsers available for different purposes. I shouldn't admit this to Google. Um, uh, that with different signatures and through different IP addresses and whatnot, and use them in different ways occasionally, just just for grins. And um, it's pretty entertaining to see the, the different profile packages without ever agreeing to um, uh, to give identity credentials in in these cases. I get um, an advocacy position um, uh, ads and um, uh, and push of commercial stream uh, of one or another uh, end of the spectrum. Uh, just to game these things. So you can kind of notice it in general. Did I give those any, anybody permission to do stuff? Obviously people that have profiled those usage patterns I've given and are using that accordingly. Haven't helped me if, if what I've done is pattern match like some miscreant too and then you know police come looking for somebody with that you know fictitious browser I was just using as well. So that's kind of the problem. The answer to your question Christian is compartmentalize a little bit. Let's not be as free. Um, I think one of the trends I'd like to see is um, uh, the uh, the technology for uh, running one's own, say, cloud service, so to speak. I don't like the word cloud in general, but um, one's own data services. Uh, so instead of sharing everything through uh, the centralized company that has a business interest in ripping you and your information, um, do it yourself. So I run own cloud yep. uh, as um, on on servers. Um, so if I have any profile from that, it's my own fault. Um, now, is it, do I have the same data support and backup and everything as, as these other places? No, but you know, um, I'll, I'm, I'm living with that trade-off, and those are things we can do. And uh, touching back on the cookies and how the cookies are really kind of the cross-link between data joining all these kind of disparate facts about you across your different browsing history. Uh, in the last year or so, a lot of websites are now having these banners. When you first visit the site for the first time and there's a first-time cookie install, there's a little banner that says, by you visiting and uh, browsing on this site, uh, you're agreeing to our ability to put cookies on your system. And I think that was a little bit because of a backlash and people saying, oh, what are all these cookies and what do they mean? Uh, but do you really think that it changes anything about, you know, people are still using these, I, you know, do you really think that that type of banner is discouraging people from saying, oh, I'm not going here anymore, backspace? Um, and, and is that a really effective measure for, uh, you know, most, most probably 99 plus percent of sites on the internet now store at least two, if not more, cookies um, in any given session. Uh, so do you really think that the policies and the terms of service that are in these websites, are they useful, are they relevant, um, or do companies need to kind of go back and figure out another way to rehash that? I, I think the answer to the question is no. Uh, I'm not sure they're particularly uh, useful, the, 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 either the cookies or the, the, the disclaimers. The banners you're referring to, I think, initially started chiefly in Europe uh, for many of the sites, and then, of course, internationalized services um, uh, will, um, uh, uh, who want to you know, do business in many countries will also adopt the practice. So that's a little bit of what you're, you're, you're seeing in that. Um, in terms of the, dis the, the uh, discovery of the privacy policies, I'm probably like most people. I rarely read what these things are. I could be uh, the you know the channeling the, the the sequel to the South Park episode that you know titled "I Agreed by Accident 
um, on these things. Uh, those are um, those are pretty typical. I'm not sure at how many I've ever seen anybody back away from uh, a site after they've been told, "Oh, we're going to put a cookie in the machine." And let's also be real: um, cookies are very passe in this stuff too. They're useful. We do session stuff. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, but um, it again, we for identification purposes, if your intent is to to profiling and tracking, you kind of get more from an IP address and browser signature than you do for uh, for an upload of a cookie. Um, the the latter uh, the, the the browser signature is going to be um, uh, more persistent uh, unless you have the plugins that I do that change these things around um, and uh, most folks don't do that this is why banking software uh, you do online banking um, you know they uh, the first time you go in it says uh, uh, you have to go through all the privacy questions and whatnot and it drops a cookie that'll look for the next time to make sure it's sort of the right the right place well some people who clear cookies all the time and or track what's there, um, you know, uh, eventually notice that the bank still starts accepting this. Why? They 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 fingerprinted that browser, and they have and they know the IP address and the history. So when they when they when they do the poll for the initial uh, of data after the this the first session connect, um, they're 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 doing a join in that database not just on the previous session cookie but other these other parameters. So they're pretty confident. Um, it's the the sort of the equivalent of when you're calling your bank to, to authorize a credit card. You know, they check caller ID to see are you calling from the the phone number you registered as a place at. Okay, so it's a, a step towards a you know two-factor authentication. The same is true for the browser information. So the cookies are sort of less relevant. There's other beacons that people put on for for um, for loading these things, little one-pixel things you can you you can track. Um, uh, you see. Um, uh, you can tell often when people read their mail if you put little icons in your to to dress up your uh, your messages to them. They'll load from a site if you had load from a site you control. As soon as that person loads the message, if they're kind of uh, flagrant and and loose in how in agreeing to load out external information, your server is going to say, "Ah, this is what time Christian read that email message." So uh, there's lots of ways you give information away that don't necessarily involve cookies. Interesting. And generally speaking, how easy are like some of the tools and plugins that you're installing? If someone's aware of them, are they easy to install and set up? Are they a time-inducive task? Or most are pretty easy. Um, I use Mozilla-based uh, products. Uh, there, I set it, um, and um, uh, the plugins there are pretty uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, I'm not going to put a plug for one or the other right now, but you can you can look through the um, the available ones when you're searching uh, for that. Um, you know, is it the best of software out there? No, but it's pretty good. Um, it, you know, everything has got its ups and downsides, and so just be a good consumer um, in these things. I, I, I should say that I use Firefox, for example, uh, as a convenient, simply because of the commonality across the, the zillion different platforms that I have to work on. So it's hard to te teach my old fingers um, how to, to, to remember how to use one of the other set of commands for the this you know Microsoft the genus thing versus this Linux thing versus this Mac thing versus the you know on and on so um, commonality is good for us old folks basically interesting um, and and by and large is there a particular reason that you would discourage the use of another particular browser besides compatibility? Are there certain browsers you see as more or less secure in the realm of how they treat your data, or is that just kind of a, do you see them as similar? Um, I, I, I don't have uh, a technical reason to, to say that there's a strong difference, simply I haven't looked closely at that. I Personally, I treat them all pretty skeptically anyway, um, so I do... You know, when I'm if I'm vetting a, a new tool, I might consider for my own business use as opposed to for some research purpose. Um, I do vet it by trying to look at you know, uh, you know how much is Ichi trying to phone home, um, what's the payload, things like that. Um, and but I think all of them kind of kind of give give something away after a fashion. Um, aside from the, the uniformity of interfaces for you know, many platforms consideration. Um, another a reason I would um, uh, shy away from some very platform specific uh, or operating specific, uh, system specific things is simply because the the uh, uh, I want to go away from where the herd is going. Um, uh, you know, for a long time this has now changed in terms of proportions. But IE, pick your level and, and, and number. You know, had big market share. Frankly, that's 
makes it the most likely target um, for for analysis. Nobody's going to want to invest a lot of um, uh, uh, resources in some you know former you know Eastern Bloc country generating lots of malware and exploits for something that's a small percentage um, uh, 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 of the market. The, the the business model is just not there for that. Um, so I I kind of want to stay away from the herd for that reason. Gotcha. Uh, so I want to touch on kind of one last topic because I know you you got other agenda items for the day uh, as do we all. Uh, but I think this kind of ties and sort of wraps up privacy. Obviously, there's so many topics we could get into uh, that would last us through a year here. Uh, but I'm curious to see what um, insight you can give to listeners about the role of journalism in privacy because I think that's an area that really isn't uh, too commonly talked about and is something a little bit outside the realm of what we typically talk about technology-wise. And, you know, do you really see journalism as a tool that is important in shaping privacy legislation, what we're doing with privacy in the United States, um, and how effective have we been at doing that um, in the past couple of years, especially with all the things that have been happening in the media. We're seeing a lot of different reactions to, you know, Edward Snowden, WikiLeaks, um, you know, just a, a laundry list of things. And I think everyone is really coming in at, at different angles. And I'm curious what you think uh, journalism can do to try and analyze and look at that problem. Sure. Um, look, uh, I'm a big fan of journalism. Um, uh, I, I've, I've aspired to be a writer, and, and I've, I've written newsletters, and I've worked as an advocate. Um, I think it's absolutely critical um, to the preservation of liberty, and in specific terms, um, this is the sort of um, unregulated, uncontrolled piece of government, the fourth estate, as it were, um, to, that's intended to put a spotlight, good, bad, or otherwise, um, on the other aspects of government and what's going on in society. So, um, you know, there's a very important reason why freedom of the press is one of the banner uh, rights enshrined in the Bill of Rights um, and, and is recognized as such. We don't have the rights because we wrote them down. We wrote them down because we have these rights. Um, it's an absolutely critical piece. I think, it's, I mean, I know, we all know, it's, uh, journalism has evolved dramatically in the last, you know, couple decades. Technology's um, broken these things uh, up considerably. Um, you know, in, in my in my youth, uh, uh, you know, you had a couple, three channels on TV, and you had a, a couple of syndicates, and that was it, and you trusted those, uh, and there was a lot of effort put into um, making sure there were some standards followed there, um, maybe not always the best of, of outcomes, but there was a lot of effort in that. I think there are some serious journalists today uh, who, who take the same care and pride, but they're also feeling a lot of pressure um, because of the, so, the, the many outlets um, out there, so um, uh, there's a there's a race to see who can beat the other to the the tweet on you know one another new factoid rather than collect information and portraying it in a um, well woven tapestry. You're hanging threads out in a hurry and it comes in unordered. Um, part of me loves that because um, it gives an information stream that's. Um, lets me feel like I can I can sample from many places and try to be a scientist, try to be a good consumer, try to be a citizen in analyzing what's going on. Uh, but we also know that that makes it easier for the gotcha, the politics and whatnot. It puts a burden on the consumer to 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 be savvy and skeptical and careful about how to weight these things. So I'm a news junkie. You know, my first hour of the day is devoted to catching up what was going on when when, uh, uh, when I was sleeping, um, you know, in the world and agonizing about it as if I could do something about it. <laughs> and, uh, um, it's to, uh, and I follow things during the day. It's, but I, but I, but I take it from many sources and I weigh these things. I compare, contrast uh, what's going on from, you know, MSNBC versus Fox versus what's on a Reuters thing. Here's an AP blurb. Here's a, we look at a whole spectrum of different uh, uh, sources. I don't think everybody does that. I think that being an informed voter is the citizen's responsibility. Just being a voter is not a particular um, uh, obligation. Um, I think the, the the intent was that you become an informed voter about what's going on with government, what's going on with society, and whatnot. I don't care to have that we have raw numbers of people going out and vote to try to exercise the franchise. I do care that we have more people informed and concerned about that. Um, and uh, the, so journalism plays that pretty important role. 
Um, but it's a moving target right now in, in terms of how people use it. Um, the same way that there are good journalists out there trying to put things together and uh, uh, and really craft genuine you know insights. Um, there's also a lot of advocates out there, uh, a lot of barracudas swimming in that ocean that are trying to you know drive the the the, uh, uh, the school one or another way. Um, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between these things as well. Absolutely. Uh, well, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming out and spending the hour with us, and I feel like this really will give a lot of topics for further exploration on both the tech side and the privacy side that is hopefully going to become part of our future guest speakership and uh, some of the things we're going to focus on. So, again, thank you for coming out, and uh, turn that back to Jim. Jim, thanks again from our side, too, as well, for coming in. We're, Christian and I have a little bit of work to do in the post-show. We won't make you hang around for that. Okay. And so if you want to disconnect, go ahead and hang up uh, at the button right above. Okay, I'll we, do exactly that. Thanks yeah. for having me, guys. Uh, thank you for coming on. We we'll hope to have you back. All right, take care. Thank you. Christian, I want to uh, use this time. Uh, if uh, folks are listening to the recorded version of this and uh, and haven't done this yet, uh, I was talking, I'm chatting with Rich O'Neill online here just a few minutes ago. It's probably time to get the uh, the RSS feed set up for yourselves for Cyber Frontiers. And so we are going to release one more of these through the Home Tech, uh, which now becomes Home Gadget Geeks, and we will release one more of these programs through that method, and then it will drop off in the Cyber Frontiers was uh, officially put into iTunes this last week, and so you can get it through that. We have the RSS feed available on the site. I actually, this weekend, need to put a little bit more work in to make that RSS feed easy for you to get, um, and that's why we'll do one more show in the uh, the Home Tech feed to get that to you. But uh, now would be the time to get that set. It's going to stop being in this feed and move on to its own. We've got three of these now, and uh, we have more coming. So, Christian, good work on uh, and getting the good doctor in there. You know, an hour is just not enough time to flush all those pieces out, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, we probably could have, uh, that guy is such a wealth of information, we could have probably done uh, another 20 shows at least on the things that, that, ha uh, that he has in terms of both the technology and the privacy aspect. Uh, there'll be some other aspects. We want to look at education and cybersecurity, so we're going to get some uh, speakers in about that. Um, and again, some of those other areas we talked about, economics, psychology, those are all things that we'll try and weave in. Um, of course, we also need to keep in mind that I want to talk about uh, kind of, well, we did get some nice big data conversations, so that was, that was solid. Um, but, you know, there's other technologies too that are all relevant to this bigger picture of what is the cyber frontier. So, Yeah, very good. I think we're off to a good start as summer comes up. I know this is the first show in about a month and a half maybe or so, yeah. and Christian's been, uh, we're going to be a little sporadic, I think, on this uh, program. It's just it's when things come up and when Christian has time. As the summer progresses, uh, hopefully we'll get a little more time to work through some of those. So Christian's been saving some material up for the summer and a good opportunity to to work our way um, through some of those topics. Of course, uh, we'd love to hear topics from you, and if you have questions, it'd be great to get those questions called in. I'd really love to use that line, 402-478-8450. Call those in. We'll play them live, and uh, if you got questions for us, for Christian, uh, anything you want to get in. I think certainly what uh, comes from today, I, I, I saw some questions in chat that we yeah, that'd really be great. answer. And so it would be good to get those called in. And, and uh, we'd love to have you respond. You can post those in the comments on the, uh, the, uh, out at the site. So if you go to theaverageguy.tv. And this will be CF003 by the time I get this posted. You can put those down on the bottom and, and get that out too. I think we got some good stuff coming up as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if you guys have any specific questions for the uh, guest speaker that you'd like me to pass on, we can also get those put in the show notes, hopefully. So uh, I know there's a couple questions in chat. I'm sure there's there are other questions that you guys will um, think of after listening to the recorded version. So please feel free to pass those on to Jim or myself, and we'll get those answered. Yeah, for sure. And then, uh, of course, uh, with the big vulnerability this weekend and uh, all the things that are going on <laughs> with passwords, um, I think I'm finally going to maximize my LastPass um, uh, subscription and get everything get everything in LastPass and get all my passwords changed and get them all unique and uh, and really use, use this, although I'm not as concerned about this as I think everybody else is. And I know I'm always the guy who says it's not that big of a deal, but there was, a, there was an interesting article on Mashable about all the sites that 
this didn't affect. And uh, and so I, I think there were some uh, indications early on that everything was, you know, everything is affected. Now, if you're a guy who uses the same username and the same password for every site, you absolutely should do some things yeah. this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. You should get some things straightened up and uh, and maybe deploy some better. Uh, and, and you know what? I, I do have some duplicate, so I'm I need to get uh, I'm going to get some things changed here pretty quickly. So, Christian, anything else you want to cover before we wrap it? No, I think that's a wrap for one week and uh, more content to come. Okay, and don't forget about uh, these, uh, and we'll probably release this in the uh, middle of next week from uh, in the actual feed. But uh, we've got a lot of things going on. I'm getting a call that's coming in for work, so I better let you guys go. Thanks for co- joining us on Cyber Frontiers. We'll be back. Watch TheAverageGuy.tv for everything going forward. Thanks for coming out. Thanks, everyone.